for the life and testimony of Mr. Stephen Ferguson, to express your sympathy to the family and to assure them of your thoughts and prayers at this time. To his wife, Irene, daughter, Leanne, her husband, Connor, and daughter, Darcy, son, Jonathan, brother, Harry, and his wife, Sandra, brother, Paul, and his wife, Donna, sister, Angela, and her husband, David, and all the extended family circle and friends. We extend our deepest sympathy today and assure them of our prayers. We'll commence our service by turning to the order of service, and you'll see there Psalm 23 is the first one, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, he makes me down to lie, in pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. Let's stand please as we sing.
may be seated. Let's pray together in prayer. Our gracious and our eternal Father in heaven, we thank thee that today we can call upon thy name. And in this morning service, convened because of the passing of our brother Stephen, we pray that double draw graciously near to every heart. The double touch, in particular, the family, who are feeling acutely the loss today, have been trying to prepare themselves over the last while for what was they knew to be inevitable. And yet we recognize that no amount of preparation will satisfy or be enough whenever we come to these difficult and terrible days. So we pray that thou will come near to Irene today, that she will know the arms of thy love and care wrapped around her. We pray that thou will be with Leanne and Jonathan, right down through the family circle, Connor and Darcy and the brothers, and also Stephen's sister, the extended family. And we thank thee, Lord, for the number of friends that have made it their business to come out today and show support for the family, to register that they care, and to acknowledge that whatever they can do, they will do. Many will have already walked this way before, will know the difficulties of this part of the journey and of what stretches ahead. And so we pray that thou will be with every heart today, that thou will be in all of our need, the one that will come and meet that need. Do so supremely and sublimely and strongly because of who thou art and because of what thou art able to do. We thank thee that we come to the sovereign God today, King of kings and Lord of lords. The very nations of men are but a drop hanging from the bucket in comparison to thy power and thy great and wonderful grace. And so we fall before thee. We pray that thou wilt have a word for our hearts. We ask that thy tender loving kindness will be our portion today and the days to come. We think of the hymn writer who posed a question so many years ago, is there anyone can help us? One who understands our hearts. When the thorns of life have pierced them till they bleed, one who sympathizes with us, who in wondrous love imparts just the very, very blessing that we need. We thank thee his answer is our answer today. Yes, there's one, only one. The blessed, blessed Jesus, he's the one. When the waves of sorrow roll and affliction presses the soul and you need a friend to help you, he's the one. And so we come today to the one who stood at the grave of Lazarus back in old-time history, and he wept over the passing of his friend. And it was commented from the crowd, Behold how he loved him. And Lord, we come today, and the one whom thou lovest as well, who was a center of affection within his family, Stephen has gone. 
Into thy tender care we are assured, but still the chasm of his passing is felt. The loss that the family knows today is keen and deep. But Lord, we ask that thou wilt come near, that thou wilt abundantly bless. May thy word be our comfort, our challenge, our encouragement, and our exhortation, even this day and in the days that in thy will would lie ahead of each of us. We pray in our Saviour's blessed and holy name. Amen. I want to pay a tribute to Stephen, and I must say that the material has been supplied here by Leanne, no doubt in consultation with Irene. And the tribute is this, and I will add some personal words at the end as well. Stephen was born to Harry and Nan Ferguson in East Belfast. Initially, the family lived in Memel Street. He had three siblings, his older brother Harry, and as the eldest in the family, Stephen really looked up to Harry. Younger brother Paul, younger sister Angela, and they were a close and loving family. They moved to Tully Carnot, and Stephen went to Dundonald High School. When leaving school, he was always interested in footing around with cars, and so it didn't come as a surprise when he trained as a motor mechanic with John Chambers at his garage. And through the years, that love of cars never left him, and he enjoyed dabbling a little in buying and selling. In the late 1970s, Stephen worked in Kex Industrial as a fitter, a motor mechanic, and it was here where he would meet Irene, who worked in the office as a telephonist. He always had many a ready excuse as to why he needed to go up to the office, but everybody knew it was only to see Irene, no matter what he was saying it was. One February, coming up to Irene's birthday, Stephen plucked up the courage to ask Irene out. Irene told him, not tonight, as she was going out with her friends. But not to be put off, Stephen asked about, well, the next night. And Irene said she had nothing on that night, so would go out with him. The first date was a cinema. Stephen was joking that I'll meet you inside, meaning she'd buy her own ticket. And just in case you think he followed through on that, he did buy Irene's ticket that first night. They very quickly became inseparable, with Stephen visiting Irene's house every night, always seemed to manage to miss the last bus home, which meant that regularly he was walking from Newtonards Road through to Tully Carnet. Months later, Stephen moved in with Irene and her family, a part of the home then of Davy and May and Marion, and he took up residence on the sofa. The two were madly in love at this stage. Soon after Stephen proposed, Irene said yes, they picked the ring together. They were married on the 1st of October. So you will recognize that to be a very poignant date today. 1977, with the reception held in the Park Avenue. Stephen carried Irene over the threshold of their first tomb in Mishona Street on the Castlereagh Road, and their honeymoon consisted of a couple of nights in a caravan in Ballyhalbert. And I'm sure they would say how times have changed. 
1980, they had by that stage saved enough money to travel to Las Vegas. And they stayed there for six weeks with relatives, Irene's cousins. Took that time to see the shows, try the casinos, visit the Grand Canyon. And those six weeks almost were extended into a permanent stay because they loved it so much. But home to Belfast they came. Other holidays were enjoyed over the years in Crete and Cyprus, together with regular holiday companions, Harry and Sandra. In July of 1982, Stephen and Arlene were blessed with their daughter, Leanne, then with Jonathan, following a few years later, in May of 1986. When Jonathan was born, and this literally happened, when Arlene was in hospital, and maybe this is cue or a hint for somebody else to try the same move, but the family moved while she was in hospital to Tilgard Street on the Woodstock Road. Life was good together. They were privileged to go on family holidays. Butlins, Pontons, Alton Towers, Blackpool. Uh, holidays that became again familiar in more recent times, I guess, when you couldn't really fly anywhere else. And they travelled by ferry. In 1993, the family took the first foreign trip together, going to Disneyland Paris. And Stephen being the petrol head that he was, drove the long distance between the two ferry terminals. May and Laura also came on the trip, but they had the privilege of flying there. It would have been too dangerous for Laura to be sitting with Marion driving that kind of a distance, I'm sure. The two families also went to Disney World, Florida. Everybody flew that time. So I think you're getting the picture that lots of fun was experienced together as a family. That included many times where they stayed in Harry and Sandra's caravan in Groomsport and especially enjoyed being there around Halloween for the barbecues, sparklers, fireworks and everything else. Stephen, and I think that's testimony to the number of people gathered here today, had many close friends. He liked to socialise. I'm told, I would know nothing about it, he could make one tin of coke last all night. And uh, obviously others know what I'm talking about. Anybody else that couldn't do it had to buy their own. Music was a particular passion in his life. Uh, names like David Bowie and Queen and Status Quo and Willie Nelson, Celine Dion... And the family remember him not only watching music videos, but then trying to perform what he'd been watching and showcasing his own musical talents. Uh, maybe the Patsy Cline favourite of Crazy would have been belted out at the top of his lungs on the way home. If the children heard their daddy singing, that or other pieces, Leanne and Jonathan were down the stairs like a shot because they knew this was opportunity knocking, asking Dad for money. That was the moment he would gladly empty the contents of his pockets right into their hands. I'm glad there's only one line on this because I couldn't cope with any more. Stephen was an avid Man United fan. And loved watching them play, like all Man United fans do, when they were winning. 
He also loved fishing, even though I'm sure he rarely caught anything. In the 1990s, he joined the RAOB, the Buffs, and Harry would already have been a long-time member there. In that association, Stephen made so many great friends. It became a significant part of his life, and he was totally committed to it. Different roles, therefore, were conferred on him through the years. He enjoyed his time not only as a member, but especially looked forward to the trips when they were going out visiting other lodges. As Leanne and Jonathan became older and outgrew those family holidays, Stephen and Arlene were able to enjoy doing their own thing again. Stephen generally liked to be at home. However, he loved the Spanish resort of Benidorm, and he and Arlene went there as often as possible. Don't know if you went to Terramatica, but just about the worst wooden roller coaster I know in terms of shaking your neck, uh, vibrating it around. But sometimes they were accompanied by Stephen's family members, his mum Nan, brother Paul, and his wife Donna. Stephen was always happy when he could see Leanne and Jonathan content in their lives. In August 2014, Stephen was able to walk his daughter down the aisle, one of the proudest days in his life. Then in August 2018, a day that no one thought would ever come, Stephen and Arlene were delighted with the arrival of their first and only grandchild, Darcy. Stephen wholeheartedly threw himself into the role of Granda and adored Darcy just as she did him. Darcy, in fact, was such a blessing to the entire family. As Stephen, around that time, began to feel ill, and was shortly diagnosed with cancer. In late 2018, Stephen had an operation, and then chemo and radiotherapy that removed the cancer. His health improved for a while. He enjoyed time again with family and friends. But in March of 2020, the family received the devastating news that the cancer had returned. They hoped for a similar outcome as the previous time, But as the treatment had a detrimental effect on his kidneys, it had to be stopped. Over the next couple of years, Stephen was in and out of hospital. Each time he rallied round, made the most of his time when he felt well, loved nothing more than spending time with family and especially noting how Darcy was growing up. When he was well enough, he loved to get out fishing with his friend Laius. Looking back, On circumstances now, the family feel very fortunate that in the early summer of this year, Stephen seemed to enjoy the best spell of health that he had in a while. He was able to enjoy a family meal for his 64th birthday, other family days out. Throughout his difficult cancer treatment, the other complications that he encountered, he was always in good spirits, never complained, remained the Stephen that everybody knew and loved right until the end. And you can well appreciate how he will be very deeply missed by his family. I thank God for Stephen Ferguson. I thoroughly enjoyed his company. 
really appreciated the person that he was, a pillar to his own family, straight up and down with all his friends. And of course, as a minister, while I had a deep concern for his body, I had a special interest in his soul. And we spoke of spiritual things many, many times. And as we were praying with him and reading scriptures to him, he used to tell me and told me on more than one occasion, I'm this close to coming to Christ for salvation. That's what he was referring to. And on the 4th of December of 2021, again, he was in the Ulster Hospital. And I came in, sat down, hadn't said a word beyond higher things, when he just said to me, I'm ready now. And that day, he gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. Stephen's family wished to acknowledge and thank all who took care of him. The staff in the Ulster Hospital, in particular those at the McDermott Unit and the Renal Unit, the chemo and radiotherapy team at the city hospital, nurses who looked after him when he came home, district nurse Orla, and the Marie Curie unit, and the hospice team. We're going to turn to the Word of God and read a short passage in the book of John, words of our Saviour. and He's approaching his own death on Calvary at this time. And in John 14, verse 1, and if you tuned in to the Queen's funeral a short time ago, you would have heard these words quoted. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thy ghost, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you have lived for any length of time, then you too will have had to do what the family are being compelled to do today. Bury somebody that you love. And you felt the sting of regret and maybe the sorrow of unfinished business and thought to yourself, if only a little longer and so much more could have been accomplished, you felt then the paralyzing confusion and the emptiness of loss. And you've likely also 
find your mind flooded with a number of questions about, and we think of this whenever death comes, about life beyond the grave. And verses I'm leaving before you today answer some of those questions. We find them in Job, round about the middle of the Bible, but one of the very earliest books in terms of time. Job 19, the verse 25 to 27. And this man said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. A little bit of background. Job had experienced the devastating loss of a loved one. Several loved ones, in fact. There was a time when Job in life had it all. He had ten children, fields of livestock, an abundance of land, a house full of servants, a substantial mountain of cash. And then, without warning, like an avalanche, adversity came upon him. In fact, in multiple avalanches, he lost his livestock, his crops, his land, his servants, and all ten of his children. And understandably then, his own health began to seriously crumble. But in the middle of his pain and heartache and devastation and loss, he announces this profound statement of faith and hope that we have recorded in Job 19, verse 25 through 27, that we have just read together. In that statement, He's striking three big notes of certainty. He's expressing three key convictions and confidences that he has about this life, but especially about the life that is to come. The first thing that he says is this. This body is not permanent, but transient, passing. We die. This body is not permanent, but passing because we die. Job 19.26 And though after my skin worms destroy this body, verse 27, though my reins be consumed within me. And it's pretty graphic, if not a gruesome way to describe the decomposition of the body upon death. But Job was a realistic man. He had seen others die. He had seen many do so in sudden circumstances. Extreme weather conditions, accidents, at the hand of murderers, so many of them in the prime of life. Those much younger than Job himself. In fact, his own children. And what crushing heartache it is for any parent to lose their child. He'd been forced to look down the equivalent of the obituary columns of his day, such as we have in Genesis chapter 5, where we read of all of these names and then after every single one, because this is real, and he died. And he died. And he died. No matter what life he lived, there came a time when he would die. Stephen Ferguson's name entered those columns this week. How soon will it be before some others are scanning down the same column and reading our names there? 
We have seen like Job had and heard of others dying. And Job knew there was decay in his own frame that he was dying even as he lived. As we all are, his body was a victim of disease. He was dying soon. He realized my body is going to be put in the grave. The process of decay is going to accelerate then. And though after my skin, he terms it, worms destroy this body. No wonder, Job said... And really to get the picture that he paints, you would need to be up the road towards Bangor, drop off at Coltraw, go into the Folk and Country Park, see the loom operating there, because here's what he described his days as, they are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Again, he says, they are a shadow. James in the Bible talks about her days being a vapor that appeareth a little time and then vanishes away. And the great emphasis I find in the Bible is not on the length of our time, but on the shortness of our time. Don't we on Remembrance Day pay tribute to that fact? When we sing swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away, and there will come a day. When our little, or sometimes by our measurement, long day of life will come to an end and our body will be carried to the grave, have we faced up to that reality or are we dodging it? Because that's the natural thing to do. Push it to the back of our minds. Program our thoughts to believe that that day is some distance away. This old house I'm living in is needing repair. The windows and the shutters, they're letting in cold air. I say to myself, I'm going to fix them when I can find the time, but lately, I've got leaving, just leaving on my mind. This body is not permanent, but passing, we die. Another conviction Job has was this. This body is not annihilated, but resurrected. We die And we will live again. That was another certainty for Job. We die and we will live again. And so he says, though after my skin worms destroy this body, that's not the end. Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. What's he doing? He's putting up the flag here and he's saying, death is not annihilation. He's confidently stating, Death isn't going to be the end of his existence. Even after his body has been laid in the grave and is destroyed, he will continue to exist. His soul, that immaterial part of him, will go on living. And one day in the future, that dissolved body will become subject to a resurrection. Be reunited with the soul again and in that resurrected body. He said, I will see the Lord. Horatio Spafford, I'm sure you've heard his story, he was a 43-year-old lawyer, lived in the north side of a suburb in Chicago with his wife Anna, their five children. Back in 1871, his only son died a few months later. The great Chicago fire of that year burnt up his real estate investments, and he had a considerable number of those. He lost his entire life savings. Two years later, Obviously, business had come back to some degree, and he and his family decided they would take a holiday to Europe. 
However, Spafford was held back by some last-minute business, and he sent his wife and his daughters on on the SS Ville du Harve as they were scheduled to join it, and he promised, I'll catch up with you in a few days, take another sealing vessel, and I'll meet you in Europe. On the 22nd of November, 1873, the ship was struck by an iron sealing vessel. It sank in 12 minutes. 226 people lost their lives. When the survivors of that shipwreck landed in Europe, Anna Spafford cabled her husband back in Chicago, and she wrote in that cable, Saved alone. What shall I do? Spafford immediately left Chicago to bring his wife home. In the middle of sorrow, He's sailing close to the place where his daughters had lost their lives. He wrote the words of what has become now a famous hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Death is not annihilation. Our soul lives on and our body will be resurrected to stand before God. How will that go for us? Are we ready? Have we prepared to meet God? Is our soul saved? A third conviction. This body and soul is not worthless. But Job says in his case, redeemed. In other words, we die and we will live again and we may. Live forever in glory. Job 19.25, For I know, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. You know what? That's why Job knew he would live again. That's why he knew that he would see God. Why? Because he had a Redeemer. And that Redeemer was and is living. Well, what's a redeemer? One who repurchases, buys back. One who delivers from bondage by paying a ransom. For I know that my redeemer liveth. In stating that he had a redeemer, Job was acknowledging, I needed to be bought back. I needed to be repurchase. Oh, he knew that he belonged to God as we all do by creation. God had made him. He was therefore responsible to God for the way in which he lived in the body as we are. But sin, he realized, had interrupted the relationship between him and God, driven a wedge, blocked up the gate of heaven, sent him spiraling towards hell. But for his rescue, his repurchase, His, we use the term regeneration, means being born again. His redemption, the word he's using here. This redeemer had stepped into his miserable existence. And by the price of his own precious blood shed on Calvary, this redeemer had paid the ransom for him. Jesus is the redeemer of whom Job spoke. There is no other redeemer. He has delivered us. From the tyranny of sin by paying the ransom with his own sinless blood. If you'd been down in Tullymore House a number of years ago, and maybe way back in time, especially when the Earl of Roden was living there, on the mantelpiece, 
you'd have found, as everybody who visited the place discovered, there was a piece of paper attached to the mantelpiece, and it was there so that people would read it. It contained the poem, In peace, let me resign my breath, and thy salvation see. My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. Job says that he is my Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he had a personal relationship with this Redeemer, not just someone remote and removed from him, but he could claim him his. That said everything. Without him he was nothing. Is Christ your Savior, your Redeemer? Have you called upon him? Claimed him as yours? Can you say, Jesus in dying, my sin fully paid, he paid the ransom for me. We need to come as we are, as sinners to Christ. He will not turn us away. Come to thy only Redeemer. Come to his infinite love. Come to the gate that is leading homeward to mansions above. And then, like Stephen and like Job, You will have these three big notes of certainty and confidence about living and dying and what will happen beyond the grave. We'll turn to the order of service to the hymn, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout. The universe displayed. Let's stand again, please, as we sing.
Heavenly Father, we come and acknowledge thy greatness this day. Lord, we're going to need that great love and that mercy. Darling will need it. Leanne will need it. Jonathan will need it. All the family circle will need it. Marion and Laurie here and right through the connection. Brothers and sister. Their spices. We pray that I will tarry with them. That I will go with them. That I will do for them what... Thou didst away back after thine own crucifixion and resurrection. We read that those two disconsolate souls that were trudging their way home, full of sorrow, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. We pray that for all the family today, in the midst of their sorrow and grief, Lord, draw near. Go with them, we pray. We thank the Lord for every remembrance of Stephen. Precious memories. And how they will linger. And how they will ever flood the soul. Come, Lord, and show thy mercy. Give thy help where it's clearly needed this day. And all days to come. In our Saviour's blessed and wonderful name, we ask these things. Amen.